<coughs> well, 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 well. It it has been a morning. I I I woke up, uh, went out, and I've been farming in my 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 garden. Oh, like in Minecraft or in in uh, you mean like Animal Crossing, right? No, in real life, uh, oh. tending hmm. to my tomatoes and squashes. That sounds like a lot more effort than just fool- fooling around on a Nintendo Switch. It is. I'm very sweaty and itchy, uh, and I'm dirty <laughs> everywhere, mm-hmm. and it's only like 10 in the morning, so I and, I and I realized, like, oh, no, we got a podcast, and I haven't eaten yet, and my stomach started doing that, like, <laughs> like I've been awake since, like, 6, and I've been working since Oh, then. right, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. like, you know. Very hungry. Kind of hungry, and then I realized I had a leftover chow mein in one of those you know chinese food carry out containers and, mm-hmm, uh, and mm-hmm. it was it was just room temperature i left it out all night as i do i'm not i don't you know what <laughs> i don't refrigerate a lot of my leftovers if i know i'm going to eat them soon i don't want it cuz i don't want to have to microwave them mm. i'm 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 more happy to eat room temperature mm. than i'm going to need a ruling from dr don reheated. on that one <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's probably it's probably I've gotten sick from it. I don't know, but yeah, you know, to risky me, or not. <laughs> yeah, to me, it's worth it. But anyhow, the short the short of that is that I still got almost this whole container here mm-hmm. that I'm gonna need to be eating. So if you got stuff to say, uh, you know, not to say I won't be here, but right, this is gonna be a, a heavy Andrew yeah show. Well, I do have a few things prepared. Um, I was hoping, let's see, we could do a deep dive into like um, uh, uh, Elon Musk and other obnoxious <coughs> Twitter personalities, mm-hmm. or maybe we could, uh, oh. Hmm. What's that? Listen to this. Listen to this. <laughs> Is there a, tr- are you living on a train track? I think uh, it might be train time. Oh, it's it's train time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, we're going to talk about trains today. So hang on, let me just mm-hmm. uh, now. We both live in areas where we don't have electrified train lines, so we do have a diesel Boo. locomotive. Uh, but we do have a diesel locomotive. That's exciting. We've made a purchase. It was quite expensive. Um, <laughs> For the 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 council at the institute at the center of politics and society, right. we now own a diesel locomotive, uh, and we're gonna, gonna put we're gonna put one of those little stages on the back of it. Right. Yeah. Where, we're gonna, we're gonna have a private speeches. rail car. Yeah. Exactly. Like we we <laughs> just roll into tours. town and we give a speech. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing better is possible. Abandon <laughs> your hopes and dreams. <laughs> Uh, well, no, so yeah, uh, climb aboard with me. Let me just fire it up here. It's not now, you know, it's not as easy as starting a car. Obviously, it takes well, some time. How many shovels do you need to start a car, you know what I mean? Right. Coming along. Okay, and then uh, I think the rules are you have to sound your horn twice before you move, so... Good to go. Uh, so we're going to talk about high-speed rail in the U.S., which is um, kind of an oxymoron, um, and we'll get into why that is. <laughs> I have, The subtitle of this whole thing is A History of Repeated Near Successes. <laughs> you love to see it. Okay, so uh, high-speed rail. When did this whole thing sort of start? 
Um, well, first, before we talk about high-speed rail, you have to talk about uh, low-speed rail, which wasn't called mm-hmm. low-speed rail at the time. because they called hadn't, rail. Right. They hadn't invented high-speed yet, um, just like they hadn't invented color, because this was all the way back in like the 1830s when the first railroads <coughs> uh, were created, and they did both passenger and freight rail service at the time. Um, and passenger now that was rail back, service. That, that was back when it was, uh, you know, everything was in the hands of Big Canal. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you had so this is the thing, like the first railroad <laughs> came about, um or like the first big railroad came about because they wanted to be able to connect um, you know, like New York City to like the Ohio River and they were yeah. not about to dig a huge canal for that. So they're like, What else can we do? And they they went uh, they did they did some fact finding missions, you know, and they mm-hmm. sent some folks over to jolly old England. <laughs> Uh, and the English were like, hey, we have this thing, we call it a railroad. What you do is you put tracks on the ground, and then you have this complicated steam contraption thing that, that you know, moves along. And they're like, that eh, seems simple enough. So, so we got railroads, and we started to use them to move both uh, passengers and goods. And it quickly became the primary method of intercity travel because it was a lot faster than your old uh, horse and buggy, you know. Even your horse going flat out uh, could be uh, pretty easily lapped by a, a decent steam locomotive at the time. And so... That's what I call it, the, the iron horse. Indeed, yeah. Um, well, and also, you know, I don't know if they had glasses back then, too, so maybe some of them just couldn't tell that it wasn't actually a horse, but uh, <laughs> it's hard to say for sure. Um but by around 1916, uh, 98% of all intercity passenger travel uh, was by rail, uh, and passengers traveled 42 billion miles that year. Remember those statistics, because we Jeez. will come back to them later. Um, yeah, so like, I don't know what the 2% of journeys are. I guess like <laughs> horse and buggies and early automobiles at that time, but there wasn't really a road network that was very good back then. So um, high-speed rail quote-unquote, first emerged in the 1930s when you started having uh, streamlined stainless steel trains uh, that were diesel instead of steam. Uh, And these were built by the Bud Company, famous models from the Zephyr series, like the Burlington Zephyr, Pioneer Zephyr, and California Zephyr. So these were much lighter than previous passenger cars while still being strong because they were made out of stainless steel. I just recently watched a California's California's Gold episode with Huel Hauser on mm-hmm. the California Zephyr. Yeah. It's pretty great. Yeah. Um, in fact, that name, uh, I think, remains in use in some form or fashion for, for Amtrak's line that goes from Chicago to, I guess, L.A., I think. I don't know exactly. But um, back then, uh, on these fancy San diesel Francisco, trains. San Francisco. Yeah, one of those. Uh, these diesel trains averaged around 80 miles per hour, which was pretty fast for the 1930s. And they were they were pretty popular, although they did suffer because of the Great Depression, basically um, making it so no one could buy anything or pay for anything. Mm. Um, passenger numbers did recover during World War II because they did gas rationing, so you couldn't really drive a car very easily or very far. Um, so that was a, a, a brief little renaissance period for the passenger or for passenger travel on the railroads. Um, But then something happened. Uh, In 1946, two passenger trains collided, which resulted in the death of 45 people. Um, One train basically ran into another train that was stopped, um, and the 
colliding train had passed a red signal, a red stop signal, which the engineer said <coughs> he did not see. Um, mm. And so as a result, uh, as often happens with major disasters, we make changes to our rules and regulations. So the Interstate Commerce Commission, which was the regulator of the railroads at the time, uh, created some new regulations. They imposed speed limits on the railroads for the first time. Um, they required automatic signaling on many of the, the big lines used by the passenger uh, trains. And they uh, specifically required that you had to have signals inside the cab of the, lo of the locomotive, uh, which is called cab signaling, um, basically so that you can see the status of an upcoming signal in the locomotive, even if you're far away from it. Um, that was required on any line where you would be traveling faster than uh, 79 miles per hour. Now, uh, railroads uh, are clever, and they're also... Uh, big spendthrifts they they don't really like spending money at all so rather than upgrading their equipment to uh, allow them to go at these <clears> high <throat> speeds they just said eh screw it and made everything run at less than 79 miles per hour that way they didn't <laughs> have to install the equipment and they thought that they were very clever um however this greatly reduced the competitiveness of passenger rail at a time when car ownership was skyrocketing and cars were able to uh, basically travel the same speeds that trains were traveling at that time. Um, and this would uh, precipitate a decline, which would happen for many decades. Um, Fatality. Around 1964, Japan Railways begins service on the Shinkansen, which uh, is the new trunk line, uh, the first one went from uh, Tokyo to Shinosaka, and it was the first system for dedicated high-speed rail service in the world. Uh, the trains ran at speeds of 130 miles per hour or 210 kilometers per hour um, on dedicated lines that they had built for the high-speed rail service um, with, with that service in mind, so they were fairly straight and flat and grade-separated. Um, now, I don't know if you know anything about America, Aaron, but we don't really like it when other nations <clears throat> get to something before we do and claim the title yeah. of like fastest or best, whatever. Um, so the U.S. responded, the Congress responded by deciding to try and spur some sort of high-speed rail development here, and they passed the High-Speed Ground Transportation Act of 1965. And that act uh, provided for the development of high-speed service along the existing uh, Northwest Corridor line of the Pennsylvania Railroad, which ran from New York City uh, to D.C. Um, this was a line that had been electrified back in the 1930s and was still a fairly popular passenger line, although um, passenger numbers were decreasing over, uh, over the years. Um, now, and, and you know that uh, me saying, oh, we just did a single um, passenger line from New York City to D.C. is rather less ambitious, um, especially on an existing corridor than the Shinkansen, which was all new construction and was uh, eventually part of a, a much larger system of high-speed rail routes that connects basically the majority of the country in Japan now. So... Um, Already, we weren't really starting out of the gate being super-duper ambitious, but uh, <laughs> did something anyway. Um, another reason that they thought this corridor would be good, too, was that Eastern Airlines had begun an air shuttle service between the two cities in 1961, which became very popular. Because back in 1961, it apparently made sense to just fly the distance between New York City <laughs> and D.C., 
and that wasn't considered wasteful or ridiculous at the time. So um, crazy. So they <clears> built uh, these passenger cars called Metroliners, and the Metroliners uh, would provide the Metroliner service along the route, as it was called. They were a project between the Pennsylvania Railroad, uh, the Department of Transportation, and the Bud Company, which was uh, the premier builder of passenger cars at the time in the U.S., they were very advanced trains for the time. Um, they were uh, electric trains. They were multiple unit trains, which means that they're like isn't uh, w- like a locomotive and then passenger cars. Each car in the train set has its own power on board, um, which was which was um, not necessarily new, but it was it was fairly novel still at the time. And they were designed for speeds up to 150 miles per hour. So we were going to beat the Shinkansen by 20 miles per hour. Um, however, because uh, as a result of the advanced technology, they were plagued <coughs> with electrical issues. Um, one of the things that happened is that they basically took approximately half of the Metro liners and they fitted them with electric motors from General Electric, and the other half they fitted with electric motors from Westinghouse, and the Westinghouse motors never really worked right, um, which was a huge problem that they had to work out over time. But there were plenty of other issues as well. Um, and despite the fact that the trains were started to get delivered in 1967, they didn't enter service until 1969. Um, and by 1969, the Pennsylvania Railroad had at that point merged with the New York Central Railroad to form Penn Central, uh, which then took over the operation of the Metroliner service at that time. Uh, and they continued to experience various reliability issues throughout their service life. They basically required, in addition to having like an engineer and a conductor, you also had to have a technician on board every train for every journey. And the engineer would just call back to the technician <clears throat> whenever something went wrong, and they would like fix it on the move, basically. Which <laughs> is not super great, but uh, yeah. You know, um, you heard of like a chicken in every pot. This is like an IT guy in every car. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Um, and so they never really reached their full potential. They, they didn't really get up to 150 miles per hour. They started service at 120 miles per hour, and then they were progressively reduced to a max speed of 100 miles per hour. So they didn't fully live up to hmm. the design promise. However, the, the design of the passenger cars, um, and the coaches was pretty popular and actually inspired, um, the design that Amtrak would use for its like plain old passenger cars that it ordered uh later in the 70s which uh are still used on a lot of amtrak services today in fact as a sign of how uh robust they've been so that was the metroliner which we will come back uh to at the same time the united aircraft corporation uh was working on its own high-speed train system which was based on gas turbines basically um like jet engines without the without the the jet exhaust part um, but, you know, a turbine-based system. Um, the idea was that you could have high-speed operation on non-electrified lines, um, and the part that was in mind here was the part of the Northeast Corridor from uh, New Haven, Connecticut, just north of New York City to Boston, which was where the line on the Northeast Corridor had not been electrified. So the Metroliner could get you all the way up to New Haven, and then you'd have to switch and get off on a different train. So they thought that they would have the turbo train to provide high-speed service all the way to Boston, um, as well as some journeys from Chicago to points west. Uh, these were pretty interesting trains. They look pretty silly. If you go and Google turbo train, um, they have a big, huge nose. Uh, 
Turbo Train. Turbo Train. I mean, they have a pretty cool name, but they look kind of silly. Um, this streamlined. Oh, yeah, design, they look like but... a like an Arctic icebreaker train. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um. So one of the things that was novel about them is that they were some of the first tilting trains that were created. So as they go around curves, they tilt a bit, which sort of smooths out the ride and and um, keeps things comfortable for passengers. Um, however, they were considered very noisy and rough, uh, and they were taken out of service in 1976. They had only been put into service uh, in the, I think, the late 60s. Apparently, I forgot to put that down in my notes here, but 1968. Um, they were taken out of service in the U.S. in 1976 um, and gotten rid of entirely by 1980. However, uh, they were also used in Canada, and Canada continued to use them all the way up to 1982. Uh, for its Quebec to Toronto corridor service. Um, and in Canada, they didn't call it Turbo Train. They just called them the Turbos, which is fun. Um, <laughs> le Turbo. Le, le Turbo. Um, <laughs> then you had a, a, a little experiment from the New York Central in 1966. They basically took one of their uh, Bud rail diesel cars, which was like a, a passenger car from the 1930s, that ran on diesel and they took two jet engines from a b-36 bomber and bolted it to the top of the rail diesel car and then they wow. uh they they took it out to ohio uh there's a line from ohio to indiana that was basically uh aero straight and they ran it all along there and they got up to 183 miles per hour uh, and set an um, uh, american rail speed record which still stands to this day because Peng! that's 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 progress for you, I guess. Um, and then they <laughs> we set basically the don't need to do anything else, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, we don't need to go any faster than that. And then they basically immediately dismantled it because it wasn't really considered economically feasible to have a jet it, train. <laughs> it has just like I'm looking at the picture here. It's just got like rocket, like jet jets on top of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you like when I say they bolted the jet engines to the top of it, they literally just bolted it on there. They did not try to like blend it in hardly if, at all. They were just like, here you go. The, if there was the ever only... a train that I wanted to exist, it would be this one. But if there was ever a train I would absolutely not ride, it would be. It this would also one. be this one. Yeah. <laughs> The the only <laughs> modification that they really made to this train apart from the jet engines is that they put this big shroud on the front of it to make it aerodynamic so that it wasn't just a big flat piece. <laughs> I do like a, a fun thing is that they, they dismantled the jet engines and the front piece off of it, they, but they continued to use the rail car after that until <laughs> 1977. <laughs> and then they put the wow. engines on a snowblower. Uh, which turns out because they thought, oh, well, we can just point the, the jet engines down at the track and it'll blow all the snow away. But the problem is it also blows all of the ballast away that holds the yeah. track in place. And you don't <laughs> want to blow that away. So whoopsie doopsie. Um, I like, you know, there's a lot of bizarro projects that happen in like the 60s. You know, that was the time of all the futuristic like Jetsons type stuff that we were doing. We were just yeah. throwing a lot at the wall to see what would stick. <clears throat> Um, but yeah, that, that never really went anywhere, probably for the best, to be honest, because I can't imagine, uh, that really working well. I'm trying to imagine how long it would take a jet engine train to accelerate. I mean, mm. it would, it would be very fast when it got up to speed, but jet engines are not known for their acceleration power. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so that's the sort of, um, early <laughs> attempts at high speed rail service that happened. Um, however, 
uh, things were getting bad for, for passenger service around this time. So compared to the 1918 high of 98% of all intercity travel, remember, uh, by 1957, it was only 32% of intercity travel by rail. And passenger miles decreased from that 42 billion high in 1916 to just 49,000 in 1970. Excuse me. Yeah, not a not a great amount. Um, yeah. So yeah, the the whole private passenger rail uh, industry was rapidly collapsing. There were a lot of causes for it, but uh, primarily was due to the rise of automobile travel as a result of the creation of the interstate highway system, and the fact that the cost of air travel was also declining precipitously um, as larger and larger jets entered service and made things more economical for airlines. Um, one of the things here is that railroads had always been responsible for constructing and maintaining their own infrastructure. The federal government didn't pay for the railroads uh, infrastructure at all. Basically, all that the federal government did for the railroads was like grant them the land to build the railroad on. Uh, this is in comparison to the interstate highway system, which the federal government paid for. Uh, more mm -hmm. or less in total, and also subsidizing or outright paying for the cost of a lot of airport construction uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. So uh, the railroads were at a disadvantage there in that they had to construct and maintain their own infrastructure. And by the 1960s, a lot of their infrastructure was old and worn out, but uh, the declining revenues that they had meant that it was difficult to pay to replace it. And so you had this sort of vicious cycle where people didn't want to travel on the rail because it wasn't a really good experience because it wasn't well maintained, but it wasn't well maintained because people didn't want to travel on the rail. Uh, yeah. And so um, <clears throat> the passenger, you know, travel, like I said, it had surged during World War II, but as soon as gas rationing was undone, it pretty much crashed immediately afterwards um, as people were like, hey, I can drive again. So so that was cool. And then also there's the fact that the railroads, as we mentioned, were, were constructed, a lot of them in the 1800s. And so they followed routes laid out in the 1800s, which were not optimal for high-speed rail. They tended to have uh, sharp turns, things like that. They were designed for much lower speeds in mind, which meant that uh, you know running high-speed trains was not really feasible along a large part of the network um one of the one of the things that really helped to kill uh the uh value proposition or whatever the business model of passenger rail happened in 1967 when the postal service took mail service off of the passenger trains and put it onto trucks planes and freight trains um basically eliminating what had been a reliable source of revenue for um the the you know passenger services um, I think this is a shame actually, because you used to have these things called railway post offices. And basically what it was is you would haul a car along with the passenger train and there would be people in, in the car sorting the mail as you drive or as you, you know, travel on the rails to your destination, uh, which we don't even do today. And it just seems like incredibly efficient to me, but, yeah. uh, and then we were like, eh, we're not going to do that anymore. Who cares? I mean, it probably doesn't make a whole lot of difference now, given that mail volume is like at all time lows, but I don't know. I, I, it seemed like a clever idea of like, you can sort the mail while you travel, but, uh, whatever. Anyway, they, they, they did away with that. And that, that was kind of the, one of the final blows for passenger rail service. Soon after that, the, um, Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe railroads, which was one of the larger 
uh, railroads in the company and had a lot of notable passenger trains, um, filed with the Interstate Commerce Commission to discontinue 33 of its 39 passenger routes. And then things really came to a head after the Penn Central, which had only been created in 1968 as a result of the merger of the Pennsylvania Railroad and the New York Central, um, was forced also to uh, consolidate the New Haven Railroad, which was bankrupt at the time uh, and basically a huge drag on it. Um, and so the Penn Central went bankrupt in 1970 after only two years um, and filed what was then the largest corporate bankruptcy in U.S. history. Um, and filed to discontinue the majority of its passenger routes at the time, um, which was a huge deal because the Penn Central was the largest passenger railroad at the time. And so uh, Congress was spurred into action and passed the Rail Passenger Service Act of 1970, which created the National uh, Railroad Passenger Corporation, which would take over passenger service from private railroads. Um, and they gave it a trade name. First, they called it Railpacks, and then they changed the name to Amtrak, um, which is the trade name that the National Railroad Passenger Corporation continues to use to, uh, to this day. Um, 26 railroads were eligible to basically turn their passenger service over to Amtrak. 21 signed up to do that. Uh, the rest um either like just ended up discontinuing their rail their passenger service later on or various other things happened a little bizarre um but amtrak began service on may 1st 1971 um uh, having immediately trimmed half of the previously existing passenger railroads from the previous day so a passenger railroad was given a reprieve but it was expected to be brief um amtrak inherited a lot of problems from the railroads, uh, namely the deferred maintenance that we mentioned earlier, and also a lot of redundant facilities because uh, having a bunch of passenger railroads that were all different meant that in places like Chicago, you had like four different train stations because the different railroads <clears throat> went to their own train stations. And now you had just one railroad, but because the rails weren't necessarily connected together nicely, it still had to maintain those separate stations for the different places that it was going to. An example of this is like in New York, where uh, you had the Pennsylvania Station, which was originally built by the Pennsylvania Railroad, and then you had Grand Central Station, which was built by the New York Central Railroad. The rails out of those stations went in different directions, so you couldn't just consolidate to one station, and the stations themselves weren't connected either. That was actually a problem that wasn't remedied until 1991 when they finally built a rail Jeez. line to connect the two <laughs> stations. Um, yeah, not great. Also, uh, you know, they created Amtrak. They gave it all the passenger service, but they didn't give it any tracks of its own. They said, well, you have to contract with the railroads, all which are freight railroads now, and you have to co contract with them to run service on their lines. Um, and I, I don't know if you have an inkling that this might be a problem. <laughs> uh, because the freight railroads were suddenly not interested really in like helping Amtrak out that much. Um, and that continues to be an issue. Amtrak does not own the majority of the track it runs on. It has to, uh, cooperate with the freight railroads who, uh, sometimes don't want to cooperate that much. Um, 
And so in the end, passenger rail service was expected to just sort of peter out in a few years, and Amtrak was the uh, mechanism by which it would be sort of slowly wound down instead of just collapsing entirely. So it was like we were just going to gradually phase this out because eh, no one really wants to ride trains anymore. We'd all rather drive, you know, things like that, or, or fly in a big fancy jet plane. Uh, but Amtrak survived and continues to operate today, obviously. Um, and there's some interesting reasons for this. So uh, one was that because Amtrak was now a nationwide service, it was able to offer routes that were previously impossible. One of these is the route from L.A. to Seattle, which is the Coast Starlight, which was previously three separate routes on three separate railroads. So uh, makes a lot of sense, as it turns out, to have uh, sort of one big rail company that provides passenger service for the whole nation. If only there had been some examples from other nations that we could have <laughs> learned that from ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that would be socialism, though. Yeah, you know, it is interesting. It's interesting to observe that Amtrak was created under President Nixon, but um, <laughs> he wasn't super amped about it. You know, his hand was sort of forced anyway, so... Um, then another thing that happened was uh, uh, Penn Central uh, filed for bankruptcy in 1970, but its bankruptcy process, because it was so large, took a very long time. Um, and so while they were working through the Penn Central bankruptcy in 1972, Hurricane Agnes came and damaged uh, a lot of the rail networks in the Northeast, uh, which did not help uh, the Penn Central's uh, you know, costs at all. It also hurt other smaller railroads like the Erie Lackawanna Railroad. Um, and, uh, in 1973, the Penn Central officials threatened to just shut the whole company down and liquidate it if they did not receive some sort of government aid by October 1st. And so Congress was like, okay, fine. And passed the Regional Rail Reorganization Act of 1973, uh, which would nationalize the failing railroads. Um, however, Nixon threatened to veto it. Um, and he didn't sign it for a while. A court actually ordered the Penn Central to operate into 1974, uh, and on January 2nd, the uh, RRR Act was finally signed. This created the United States Railway Association, which was an uh, organization with a board that was supposed to create a, quote, final system plan, unquote, uh, to decide which of the railroads that had failed entirely would be included in a new government-owned railroad, which was called the Consolidated Rail Corporation, or Conrail. Um, and that plan eventually included the, the Penn Central, which was, uh, again, the constituents of the Pennsylvania Railroad, the New York Central, and the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad, uh, the Erie Lackawanna Railroad, the Ann Arbor Railroad, the Lehigh Valley Railroad, the Reading Company, uh, the Central of New Jersey Railroad, and the Lehigh and Hudson River Railroad, which these are mostly railroads around like the Northeast and Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois area. And so all of these railroads were put together and then uh, formed into this new uh, government-owned railroad called Conrail. Um, and it was created officially out of those railroads by the Railroad Revitalization and Regulatory Reform Act of 1974, which people call the 4R Act because it's obnoxious to say all of that. Um, an interesting result of this act was that it also included provisions that said, hey, Amtrak, if you want to buy the track that you run on from Conrail, uh, you totally can do that. And by the way, here's some money to do that. So like, go ahead and do that. 
And so Amtrak did. It bought the Northeast Corridor, all of its track equipment and stations, uh, from Conrail and assumed responsibility for uh, that whole area. And from that point onward, the Northeast Corridor would become the focus of Amtrak's efforts, uh, being by far its busiest lines, and also that which it had the easiest control over to make upgrades and do maintenance on. Um, and Conrail went on to be a, a pretty smashing success, too, which gives you an idea that maybe government owning things isn't so bad. Um, <laughs> so uh, Amtrak, uh, in 1971, assumed operation of the Metro Liner and Turbo Train services that we mentioned previously. Um, this was an era called the Rainbow Era because Amtrak basically had all of this equipment from all the railroads that it had taken over passenger service from. And it, it basically picked the best of the equipment from all the railroads and then ran it together. So you had all of these cars and locomotives and all of these different paint schemes or whatever, and it was just a huge mess. It looked like a rainbow, so they call it the Rainbow Era. Um, finally, around 1975, they sort of repainted everything in what they call the Phase 1 livery. Um, which is the familiar sort of Amtrak red, white, and blue paint scheme that we see in various forms and, and fashions today. And then, like I said, they withdrew the turbo train in 1976 because uh, they didn't really like it very much. In 1972, only a couple years after the start of the service of the Metro liners, uh, Amtrak started rebuilding them. Um, basically sending them in to have some serious refurbishments done in the hopes of increasing reliability. Um, that didn't really work, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, and the trains remained unreliable. I think, you know, throughout the 70s, there was like fully a quarter of the vehicles would be out of service at any one time, which was not great. Um, so Amtrak began exploring alternatives to the Metroliner. Uh, and they tested a couple different le locomotives uh, from European countries. They tested a Swedish locomotive and they tested a French locomotive. And they selected the Swedish design, uh, which was then built in America um, by uh, Electromotive Diesel Corporation as the AEM-7, which would replace the Metroliners on the Metroliner service. And this would be a more conventional service rather than the fancy like electric multiple unit system of the Metroliners. This would go back to just being a locomotive with some passenger cars. Um, and it proved to be very reliable and actually ended up besting the average speed of the Metroliners in regular service. Um, and it actually helped um, reversed the decline in passenger numbers on the Northeast Corridor, and passenger numbers started to increase again. Um, though Metroliners that had been rebuilt were instead shifted to run in Pennsylvania on the Keystone service, which goes from Philadelphia to Harrisburg. And they uh, remained on that service until the 1980s, although some of those cars remain in service having be been rebuilt into cab cars. Um, and are still operational today. So you can still see Metroliner cars um, out and about even today, which I think is pretty neat. Um, the Metroliner service, as it was run by the AEM-7s, the electric locomotives, remained really popular, especially as the, the popularity of Eastern Airlines uh, air shuttle waned uh, and it, it was eventually sold in 1998 to this guy called Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> So the whole thing about the Eastern Airlines shuttle was that it was like a no frills thing. Like literally you, you didn't have to buy a ticket in advance. You could show up to the airport and purchase a ticket. And then if there were no seats on the aircraft for you, they would roll out another aircraft. 
and so it was like an hourly thing. It was meant to be sort of like a like a like a um, like a bus route, but with a plane, right? So you could mm-hmm. just go back and forth. It was supposed to be fast <clears throat> and sort of relatively unsophisticated. It's just like we're going to get you from point A to point B quickly. Um, this is not something Donald Trump is good at. So he ended the whole no frills thing and tried to make it a sort of luxury shuttle service and ran the whole thing into the ground. And by 1992, he had sold it to U.S. Air. Um, and it continues today as the American Airlines shuttle, but is basically just a conventional, uh, you know, airline journey at this point, except that it's scheduled a little more frequently than than, you know, like a typical service. So so that was fun. Um, <laughs> a fun fact as I was doing some research on this was the, you know, the Metroliners were intended to compete with the air shuttle. And in fact, um, the Metroliner service eventually became so reliable and popular enough that Amtrak started, um, advertising it as the ground shuttle and Eastern airlines, uh, put up a sign in Philadelphia along the, the Metroliner route that said, uh, if you'd taken the air shuttle, you'd be there already, which I think is just extremely rude. <laughs> <laughs> but there was some some fierce competition there uh for a little while until yeah partially as a result of um especially in the the late 1970s with the oil crises and so on that made air travel more expensive and made the shuttle less feasible the air shuttle less feasible while the uh rail service remained totally fine because it was electrified um so then we shift to talking about outside of the northeast corridor um, namely the rest of the country. Amtrak uh, wanted to wait, update its Wait, 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 that fleet. exists? Do what? That exists? It does, yes. The rest of the country? Wow. So this Amtrak, is, this you know... Is my <laughs> my yeah. being a bummer about East Coast bias. Yeah. Go ahead, proceed. Uh, <laughs> Amtrak had all this old equipment that it had inherited, and it wanted to upgrade a lot of it and, and update the fleet in the hopes of drawing people in. And so they um, they uh, purchased uh, the RTG turbo liners, which were based on a French design, gas turbine powered like the turbo train, um, and ran in the Midwest starting in 1973. Um, they were pretty popular. In fact, they were sort of a victim of their own popularity because um, they were a fixed train set, so you couldn't like easily add cars in to make space for more people. And so they were so popular that they couldn't meet demand. And that led to them eventually getting phased out in favor of more conventional trains where you could just add more passenger cars for more people, which is unfortunate because these were kind of nifty trains, uh, novel being that they were gas turbine powered at the time. Uh, They were designed to go up to 125 miles per hour, but they never went above 79 miles per hour because like the thing I mentioned before, none of the rails, uh, none of the railroads wanted to upgrade their rails to allow operation faster than that. Uh, so they ran at 79 miles per hour where they could. Um, then there was a second generation of turboliners called the RTL turboliners, which provided the Empire Corridor service, which goes from New York City to Buffalo through Albany, um, uh, starting in 1976. They were also designed for 125 miles per per hour operation but never reached it although in 1998 there was an attempt by Amtrak in New York State to upgrade the Empire Corridor to allow them to travel this fast however uh, there's like some weird bureaucratic mismanagement stuff that went on and it didn't really happen and was abandoned in 2003 Um, you know it's New York weird political (laughs) things happen so 
um amtrak and new york state sort of point the finger at each other for that one it didn't really happen unfortunately um some of those turboliners got sold but my understanding is that there are still three of them in storage somewhere in like connecticut so i I don't know maybe we can use those someday because that would be fun um but yeah you know after the high-speed ground transportation act of 1965 not a whole lot happened uh federal and state governments continued to talk about high-speed rail but do nothing about it. Um, in 1980, there was the Passenger Railroad Rebuilding Act, which sort of specified some corridors that would be high-speed corridors and appropriated some funds for them, but not enough, and obviously nothing really happened from that because we don't have any of those. Um, of course, a variety of private consortia pub- have published a variety of white papers on various possible routes, but uh, that doesn't really mean anything without funding. Um Maglev trains were invented in like the 60s and 70s and were considered the hot new thing in high-speed rail, Um, but they, despite being tested in various forms and fashions in in the U.S., they never got built out here. Uh, Those have only really been built in China. Um, In uh, 1991, Congress passed the uh, IST Act, which stands for something I can't remember and no one calls it that anyway. It's something like Transportation Equity Act or something, which named five high-speed corridors uh, throughout the U.S., but provided almost no funding to do anything with them, Um, with one exception. Are actually like two exceptions that we'll get into in a moment. Those corridors were mentioned again in the 1998 Transportation Equity Act, um, but high-speed rail languished in the U.S. until 1993 thereabouts. So the one thing that came about from the 1991 uh, IST Act was that Amtrak sought bids for new high-speed equipment for the proposed corridors. Um, in 1992. Amtrak uh, leased a Swedish X2000 high-speed rail train, which provided a test service on the Northeast Corridor for several months. And then later in 1993 and 1994, they tested a German ICE-1, which is that's the Intercity Express uh, high-speed rail train, on the Northeast Corridor as well. And they used this to sort of build interest in high-speed service. And so in 1994, having done that, they put forth a proper tender for high-speed equipment for the N- Northeast Corridor. Um, And then in 1995, they took advantage of some of the money to electrify the rest of the Northeast Corridor uh, from New Haven to Boston, which would allow for full electrified high-speed service from D.C. to Boston. Um, And finally, uh, in 1999, they released their full plan um, for high-speed rail service on the Northeast Corridor, uh, a new system and train set called Acela Express which was a tilting train set that was designed to reach speeds of 150 miles per hour or 240 kilometers per hour. Um, Service began uh, with the Acelas in 2000, and despite some early hiccups with uh, the the train sets, it ended up overtaking the Metroliner service in popularity in 2005, and Metroliner service was uh, eliminated entirely in 2006, having been replaced uh, by the Acela service. And <clears throat> Acela is one of Amtrak's most popular routes. Um, it's also one of the few routes that generates a profit for Amtrak, and in fact, Acela alone accounts for 25% of Amtrak's total revenue. Um, but there is a sort of turns out about Acela, and that's that because rail traffic in general has been increasing on the Northeast Corridor for the past 50 years, the Acela actually travels the distance from New York City to D.C. in more time than it took Metroliners. 
um, only about 20 minutes longer, but it's sort of interesting that we have finally like an actual quote unquote high speed rail train <laughs> and it ends up going slightly slower. Um, but, you know, that's what happens when sort of rail in general gets more popular, I guess. It remains hampered by the fact that there's not a dedicated high speed rail line on the Northeast Corridor. Um, so it has to share space with slower trains and with freight trains and has to go over a lot of grade crossings. And so Acela is actually only able to reach the 150 mile per hour speed for uh, a section of track that's 33 miles long uh, in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. So uh, it's fast, but it's not uh, fast on average, I would say. On average, it, it, it tends to be in like the 80 mile per hour range. Um, but it was uh, what is considered to be America's first um, high-speed train service. Um, capitalizing on the popularity of Acela, uh, train company Bombardier developed a high-speed gas turbine demonstrator train, which they called the Jet Train, uh, and it toured North America in the early 2000s to drum up interest in high-speed rail projects along unelectrified lines. Um, and it was designed, it could reach speeds of up to 165 miles per hour. The only project that ended up being started as a result of the jet train or with the jet train in mind was the Florida High-Speed Rail Corridor. Um, in 2000, Florida voters, now we got to be careful here because 2000 and Florida voters has a lot of fraught uh, history behind it. But um, in 2000, Florida voters uh, voted to establish a 120 mile per hour rail system uh, between five major cities in Florida. However, uh, Governor Jeb Bush, whom we love, big fan, friend of the show, um, <laughs> basically constantly thwarted any progress uh, or you know any steps to actually do anything with the high-speed rail system. And uh, eventually, the original referendum to establish the system was repealed by voters in 2004, which totally killed the project, um, which, cool. Uh, we will see Thanks. later that Republican governors seem not to like trains. Uh, and frankly, I think that's reason enough to be suspicious of them. Um, more recently, uh, in 2007 and 8, there was the, uh, the Stimulus Act, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which provided funds for several high-speed rail corridors as part of the TIGER program, which is like uh, transportation investment generating economic recovery or something. They, they try to contrive acronyms for all this stuff, and I wish they'd stop. Um, so, uh, Florida initially <laughs> tried to take advantage of the funds for, uh, basically restarting the Florida high-speed rail project, um, but Governor Rick Scott rejected federal funds. <laughs> Similarly, there was a, a, the, what was called the 3C corridor in Ohio that would connect Cincinnati, Columbus, and Cleveland, but Governor Kasich, a Republican, rejected federal funds. Um, there was a similar plan in Wisconsin for high-speed rail. Governor Walker, a Republican, rejected federal funds. Um, so not really uh, much happened as a result of this, with one exception, which we'll get into in a moment. <coughs> However, um, some quote-unquote higher-speed rail projects, which is uh, those are usually considered to be um, a train that goes up to about 110 miles per hour, is considered higher-speed. Um, some of those projects are in progress or completed um, in Michigan, Illinois, and Missouri, uh, mostly for routes going to or from Chicago. And indeed, one of those routes is a route that I have traveled on before, 
Um, it's the Wolverine route, which goes from Detroit to Chicago and was upgraded to allow for 110 mile per hour service along a decent chunk of the line. Um, rather recently, as in happening now, uh, Amtrak is replacing the Acela train sets from 2000 with the new Acela, uh, which is what they're calling it. It used to be, it was called in development, the Avelia Liberty train sets, um, these should allow for new max speeds of 160 miles per hour, possibly increasing to 186 with track and signal upgrades that are planned for the future. Um, and these train sets were rolled out uh, late last year um, and are currently undergoing testing out in Pueblo, Colorado at the <laughs> Rail Industries uh, test facility. However, they are extremely ugly and very badly designed in terms of the cosmetics. And you can look uh, in the show notes. Um, I have a tweet here from Interurban Era who has marked up a picture of the train sets. The most egregious thing, if you zoom in, it, in on it, you can see that the, the shape of the passenger carriages, there's like a little crank out, and the mm -hmm. locomotive does not match that at all. Uh, it's very yeah, bad. Yeah, it's weird. It's extremely dumb. I don't know who approved this design. Um, it, it's not good at all. Uh, and then uh, also if you click on that tweet and you scroll down a bit, there's a picture of the inside, which Interurban Era describes as a value engineered attempt at a Star Trek TNG set. <laughs> um, <coughs> yeah. I hope that they will be good, but uh, there's a little bit of a design by committee thing going on there, unfortunately. Um, but I, you know, uh, new equipment, hopefully. Well, I want to say new equipment is always good, but that honestly, that's not necessarily true. Um, I hope that they're good. Let me put it that way. I really hope that they succeed. <laughs> All my best to the new Acela. <laughs> um, the only um, project that sort of was spurred on by the uh, Tiger Grants and continues to this day is the California High-Speed Rail System. And this is indeed the only true high-speed rail system ever attempted in the U.S. Um, because it basically calls for dedicated grade-separated <coughs> lines from San Jose to Burbank with service at up to 220 miles per hour or 350 kilometers per hour. However, it has faced uh, many setbacks from the cancellation of federal <sighs> grants. Um, in fact, President Trump canceled grants for it, sh I think, uh, a year ago or more. And so uh, at this point, only the central segment from Bakersfield to Merced is under construction, and the rest has been indefinitely postponed by Governor Newsom, who says that he supports the project, uh, but apparently doesn't support it enough to actually build the thing. Um, I just think, you know, it's like, it's cool that they're going to build part of it, but I don't know that that many people are going to want a high-speed rail service from Bakersfield <laughs> to Merced. Uh, yeah, I, I think I it's the it's the second and third <laughs> phases that matter, the ones that actually get you to uh, Burbank and San Jose. But um, yeah, conveniently, Bakersfield to Merced is probably the flattest part, so that's it is. Yeah, and it's also <clears> the, <throat> the the least like occupied in terms of you know land acquisition and construction. Things and like it's that. the most Republican. Yeah, um, I did notice. Uh, <laughs> I saw a tweet which I unfortunately forgot to put in the show notes, but um, one of the curious things about this is that uh, California has apparently designed uh, planned roadway improvements to coincide or happen as part of the California high-speed rail system in that they're sort of 
going hand in hand, and, and one wonders if perhaps that's why it seems to cost so much, is because they're also undertaking to rebuild a lot of the roadways uh, mm. that it passes, you know, near or over or whatever at the same it's, time. It's kind of an insane thing because, you know, as a resident of California and somebody who, who wants to see something like this, I, I try to discover as much information as I can. And I finally gave up like like a couple years ago mm-hmm. because there's there's just literally no unbiased uh, yeah, yeah. reporting of this. It's just like entirely drove everyone insane, and so right. yeah. you 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 just can't. Yeah, it's you know they build it, they build it. I don't know. It's just right. I really would like to see it, but yeah. Uh, one good thing that is happening is that um, the you know so the California high speed rail segment that would go from San Jose to San Francisco is basically the Caltrain line, uh, which mm-hmm. currently exists but is a diesel service. But they're currently undertaking to electrify it, um, in spite of everything else that's going on with CalHSR. So that would make it easy enough, hopefully, that they could just build the connector from where it ends now to San Jose and then it would already exist to get it up to San Francisco and you could have something there. So I don't know. The bright spot in all of this is that uh, the Bay Area at least is sort of plowing forward with Cal HSR related projects um, and trying to make those happen. So that's good at least. And yeah. certainly the Bay Area needs more, <coughs> uh, you know, uh, non-car transportation. So... <laughs> Well, so many people already live in the Central Valley and commute to the Bay Area for work, so yeah. getting those people on trains would be great. Mm-hmm. And I've done a thought <clears throat> experiment where we unify all of the Bay Area transit agencies into one agency so that they can active, actually act and make cohesive decisions for the whole area. And then you start bringing mm. in all the other rail service. There's a lot of rail services and rail adjacent services. Call in them, the Bay call area. them something like I don't know, like I'm um, just. Off the top of my head, call them like Amtrak. Yeah, you know, maybe. <laughs> it's just a thought I'm having, you know. <laughs> um, so that's California. Um, remains to be seen how successful that will be. Um, I, I hope they build the whole thing, to be honest, mm-hmm. because, uh, well, frankly, it, it's kind of silly to fly from San Francisco to L.A., but that's what a lot of people end up doing because there's not really a better way to get from one point to the other in a short period of time. So... You know, let's make that happen. Um, remember the Florida high-speed rail thing I mentioned? Mm-hmm. So it, it did sort of kind of end up happening a little bit, a teensy bit. Um, but uh, it happened through a private company called Brightline. And they, they resurrected a portion of the Florida high-speed rail idea. And they started providing service from West Palm Beach to Miami at speeds of up to 80 miles per hour. Uh, which isn't super great, but it was uh, like the first brand new private passenger rail venture in the U.S. for a while. And they are currently working on building an expansion to Orlando uh, that will run at 110 miles per hour. And then their long-term planning includes service to Tampa at 125 miles per hour, which would more or less fill out the Florida high-speed rail corridor idea as it was originally proposed. So um, some good stuff happening there. I see tweets a lot of their construction as it's happening. It's basically paralleling, um, I think it's I-5 there. In fact, when they rebuilt uh, Interstate 5, I think it's I-5. I might be wrong. No, I don't, I don't remember. Let me look. One moment, please, while I, while I look up the, uh, the information that we require, because I don't want to get it too wrong here. 
Sure, sure, sure. Construction. Well, while we're Orlando. waiting, we can look for some uh, good Huel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, let's be honest. If this weren't on the air, what, what's the big deal out of me just stepping right? I don't remember what interstate this is. Anyway, my point is that when they, when they did some uh, work to, um, you know, they, they basically repaved this expressway. Oh, it's I-95. Uh, I believe they left room with the idea that a train line would eventually go next to it. Uh, which is very forward thinking, and so now they're putting the train line down. Cool, mm. um, you love to see it. Yeah. Um, and in fact, so Brightline has been successful enough that it got bought by Richard Branson, and is being renamed <laughs> Virgin Trains USA. And then he also went and bought a service called Express West, <coughs> which would provide a service from Las Vegas to Victorville, California. Hey, uh, that's in my backyard. Uh, and uh, they are actually uh, currently in the preparation stages to begin construction on this. It will be an electrified, dedicated line. Um, they eventually hope to run it all the way to Palmdale. That's like the full extent of it. Um, mm -hmm. But it's an electrified, dedicated line. Uh, speeds of up to 180 miles per hour are planned. So that will be cool. Hopefully, get some. Yeah, uh, and they're building the train, of... the train yard in my in my hometown. Like literally, like. A few miles down the street. Yep. And yep. then uh, another thing is the Texas Central Railway, which has been uh, a, a private project to connect Dallas and Houston <laughs> at speeds of up to 205 miles per hour uh, in a sort of Shinkansen-like fashion. In fact, uh, it was actually um, uh, basically the, the reason that they're doing it like a Shinkansen was because the Texas Central <coughs> Railway Company is uh, at least partially owned by um, the Central Japan Railway Company. So they're mm. just, you know, they're just like, well, just do it the way that we do it. So um, that is uh, in the planning stages, I believe, construction. They're hoping, they were hoping to start uh, construction um, this year. I don't know if the, how that's turned out as a result of coronavirus or not. Um, but that's another planned venture that's going on. Um, very recent news. Uh, in fact, I think this is from, yeah, this is from earlier this week. Um, U.S. Representative Seth Moulton of Massachusetts proposes spending $205 billion over five years to connect Chicago with Atlanta, Portland, uh, and Chicago with Atlanta and Portland with Vancouver. Um, so, uh, he has, um, proposed a bill in a white paper to spend $205 billion over five years on a national high-speed rail network. Um, that money, in turn, could encourage another $243 billion in matching state, local, and private investments, they predict. Um, it would create a unified national vision of a rail network that could guide future investments. Um, and yeah, so they, this is a um, very new um, infrastructure plan. Probably won't go anywhere because uh, the money thing is going to scare Republicans, obviously. <clears throat> um, although, you know, an interesting thing here, uh, I think, you know, this is this proposal is for um, two hundred and five billion over five years. Um, I believe the interstate highway system costs something like five hundred billion dollars to construct. So, I mean, infrastructure is not cheap, you know. The, right. A lot of the opposition to to high speed rail is that it's very expensive to construct. 
but like so were the interstate highways like all of these big things that go very long distances it's not they can't be cheap that's just not how it works you know so uh i don't know we'll <clears throat> we'll see uh, like i said that literally was the thing that happened this week as we record so we'll see what happens from that there's a lot of this like infrastructure stuff that reminds me of this like uh you know whatever thing from from uh, the bible where they talk about wells you drink from wells you did not dig and vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant mm-hmm. you know kind of a thing which it's like we're we're like living off of all of the big spending that was done in the past right and we're barely so, maintaining like, it yeah yeah and it's like we don't think for the future that like oh we should continue to invest like we're like props for investing back then gramps (laughs) yeah we're like listen it's cool that you had the money back then but we don't have it now uh because as we know money just disappeared no there is no more as we know the the supply of money actually decreases over time um (laughs) yeah yeah, which no i don't don't bother asking about billion how many billionaires are that's it yeah yeah um so you know uh, Let's talk about high-speed rail in general. Obviously, there are a lot of challenges for high-speed rail beyond the funding one. Um, One is that all of our rail infrastructure is pretty much old. There's a lot of bridges and tunnels that sort of limit sizes and weights. Old track that needs to be replaced. Old signals that don't really work for high-speed service. Um, Old overhead lines for electrified lines that limit maximum speed. Also, like we've said, all of these railroad alignments, um, they're all, you know, were laid out in the 1800s so there's tight turns there's too many grade crossings um actually you know the you're actually limited to a maximum speed if you have grade crossings you you can't go above i think it's 110 miles per hour if there are any grade crossings. you don't want the the trains taken off on a jump you know what i mean exactly yeah (laughs) uh and you don't yeah you don't want a car across the train line when it's coming by at you know 200 miles per hour or whatever and also a lot of these these train lines went through areas that at the time were like complete wilderness but now are like bustling suburbs so they're not they're they're located very well in some sense but also very badly in other senses you know in in like a, a nimby sense it's not great but um so there's there's that there's also like I said the fact that high speed or rather that railroad infrastructure has not really been funded by the federal government at least not nearly to the same extent uh, as highways and airports have been um, one of the things that has been holding high speed rail back for a while uh, was crash worthiness requirements the Federal Railroad Administration had um, some rather excessive requirements for crash worthiness <laughs> that were based on um, standards that were originally set in the 1940s for how strong a rail car had to be uh, when it cla- uh, crashed into another rail car. Um, and this required basically excessive weight and uh, strength to be added to rail cars to, to meet this sort of unrealistic test that was not used anywhere else in the world. Um, however, that requirement has finally been rolled back as of 2018, but things move sort of slowly, so no one's really taken advantage of that yet, unfortunately. Um, like I said, we don't really have any dedicated lines for high-speed rail travel yet. And of course, freight interference continues to be a problem for passenger service. The freight railroads are supposed to give priority to passenger trains, Amtrak trains, on their routes. Um, but they don't often do this, even though it's like legally required of them. Part of that is because Amtrak is prohibited from suing railroads over this, uh, thanks to some court rulings. Another reason is that freight trains have been getting longer and longer 
Um, some freight trains can be like two miles long or more. And <laughs> listen, um, <coughs> seriously, okay. Yeah. I I work next to a rail line um that follows old Route 66. Mm-hmm. Um and our school is the school that I work at is divided by the rail line and the highway. Mm-hmm. Um and so Sometimes those rail lines, you, you like, there's an underpass to get right. to the school. Like it goes, cuts under the railroad, but it's, um, it's really small. And if there's a lot of traffic, you usually don't want to take that. Like if it's like people are coming for pickup or drop off. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so you go to the other one. That's the, you know, you just, it's a, it's a grade rail crossing, crossing yeah. grade <laughs> crossing. And, um, the thing is sometimes you, you choose wrong. <laughs> yeah yep and you're there for like the, it, it'll seriously be shut for like an hour mm-hmm. like it's just uh yeah. insane how long they make some of these right and, and so the problem with all, that the freight railroads have been making their trains longer and longer is that they haven't been building passenger sightings longer so um this means that uh the passing sightings where you could put a train so that another train can pass it won't fit mm-hmm. some of these long freight trains now, and so they have to put the Amtrak train in the passing siding and make it wait because it's the only train that could fit. And so that means that the passengers experience delays so that this exceedingly long freight train can pass by because they won't fit into their sidings because they're not big enough, um, which is sort of silly and galling to me, but uh, that's the way it works. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a... It's a mark of how efficient uh, rail, you know, service is in terms that you can transport these vast quantities of goods over long distances sort of all at the same time. But also like, you know, come on, do, do some other work to make everything else work smoothly with it. <laughs> uh, um, but there are good benefits of HSR, high-speed rail. Um, it's a good mid-range <clears throat> option, uh, optimal for journeys that are under 400 miles, uh, journeys that are sort of too long to really be feasibly taken by air um something like detroit to chicago for example is like is like too short rather not too long detroit to chicago is a little bit too short to take an airline journey because it's just kind of silly i mean you get there in like an hour but you also have all this you know um rigmarole with security and whatever so it ends up taking like three hours which compared to driving is not that much shorter and it's just such a short route anyway um High-speed rail makes a lot of sense for those sorts of things that are, like, just a little bit too long to comfortably drive, but a little bit too short to take a uh, a plane for. Um, they obviously have reduced security headaches in that there's no TSA on Amtrak, uh, and there's no body scanners or metal detectors or whatever. Um, so you don't have to worry about getting to the train station, you know, an hour and a half before your 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 train journey, you know. <laughs> You can literally show up like five minutes before it arrives. Um, The stations, train stations tend to be centrally located. A lot of cities have actually been good about preserving their old train stations, which tend to be, uh, you know, in or near downtowns, which is advantageous for, uh, you know, uh, commuters and tourists and things like that. What do you think about it, too? It doesn't take up the same square footage infrastructure that an airport does so absolutely and that's that why, space can be used for like parking or you know whatever yeah yeah that's why air, you know airports tend to be located far away from downtowns because they require so much space and because there's so much noise pollution with no. uh, airplanes which is not a, a an issue or nearly as much of an issue with with train service um they're a fair bit quieter um 
Uh, they also have the lowest emissions of any form of passenger transport. If you think about it, obviously they're more efficient than cars because you can stuff a lot more people in. But you can also stuff a lot more people in a train than you can a jet. Um, you know, jets, yes, jets can hold a lot of people. They can hold, you know, 200, 300 people on like the very top end. But a train, you can just keep adding passenger cars to. And, you know, mm-hmm. you only need like two locomotives to haul an absolute <clears throat> mess of passenger cars. So they're very efficient there. Um, from that perspective, they have a higher passenger density than cars, buses, or planes. Uh, so they make a lot of sense for moving people around. Um, and, uh, that's probably why other countries have embraced high speed rail, uh, for moving their citizenry about. Uh, and I hope that we will some, someday, um, that's that's the end of my little spiel here about high-speed rail, um, which will give you enough background because we will be doing, uh, in the next episode, uh, going through a, um, a hot take, uh, a very long hot take from the At Neoliberal Project um, entitled Why High-Speed Rail Has Failed. Uh, and we will be deci- dissecting it uh, line by line as a result of the uh, uh, background that I've just provided here. Um, because I have a lot of complaints about their arguments. I have no idea what I'm doing. I was not prepared for this. I'm trying and I'm learning. Thank you for your patience. There's so many mistakes I have already made, but I'm working to be better day by day. And I think I'm gonna make it, but for now I'll say I have no what I'm doing